want to thank all of our listeners for several years of dedicated and loyal listening throughout the Halo Talks 400 podcast completed to date. We're going to 1,000 by 2024. If you're so inclined, we'd love to have you go to iTunes for us, fill out a review so we can keep this podcast rolling globally. We are now on Chartable's top lists and moving up the charts. Also, if you want to educate yourself in the new year, please go to thehaloacademy.com. Take a look at what we've done with 150 executives in the Halo sector to get them smarter, get them prepared for capital raises, and also more winning. Thanks. Have a great season. Let's go. This is Pete Moore on Halo Talks NYC. I have the pleasure of bringing Dr. Bashara Saab to the podcast and to the Halo sector. This, I feel, is going to potentially blow you away. will be one of our top five podcasts in 2023. No pressure, but we are going to talk about solving mental illness through technology, which seems to be something that could not be done, and you are now doing it. So welcome to your first Halo Talks. Thanks so much, Pete. Pleasure to be here. Awesome. So as I was reading through your company and looking at what you guys are trying to solve and how you're going about it, I got really energized because it seems everyone has a phone and a camera. Uh -huh. You guys are actually using that technology not to create albums and uh, collages uh, with music behind it, but actually to diagnose stress, diagnose mental illness, diagnose probably a litany of other things that uh, are behind the curtain. So talk about your background. Uh, probably the most qualified person ever on Halo Talk, so I'll give you that accolade to start. But uh, fire away uh, the short version. Uh, short version is uh, I classically trained as a chemist. I did a PhD in neuroscience at Mount Sinai in Toronto. And then eventually I opened my own laboratory as a principal investigator at the University of Zurich it's a Psychiatry Hospital. I mostly worked, my research lab really focused on understanding the circuits and the molecules that really give us this motivation to explore. And along the way, I discovered that this is actually very relevant to mental illness because across the, virtually the entire board of mental illness, there's a dearth of exploratory drive or at least exploratory behaviors. And at the same time, I was growing very frustrated being situated in a psychiatry hospital that my, my colleagues who I admired and adored and loved to work with didn't have the ability to use objective tools as they delivered medicine in the same way that other disciplines of medicine do. And you know, it's held psychiatry back for hundreds of years. And now we actually have the ability to treat the brain like the organ it is, measure it objectively, and then iterate our, our therapy accordingly. So when you talk about molecular science, how much of that is the DNA and how much of it is training, discipline, you know, could be enhanced over time? Very interesting question. So everybody is born with a completely unique brain. This is absolutely certain. The, the complexity of the brain mathematically indicates that there not only are no two brains alike today, but there have never been any two brains alike in the history, nor will there ever be, no matter how long we exist as a species. And so there's always going to be variation that's inherent to uh, what we start out with. Um, and much of that is determined via genetic factors. However, the plasticity of the brain never stops. There's a famous study that looked at you know, when plasticity in the brain really begins to end. And the oldest they 
examined was 26. But even in the 26-year-olds, they saw a very, very strong plasticity. And now it's generally understood that the brain is always changing. And not only is the brain always changing, but it changes actually much quicker than we previously thought possible. Because what determines the strength of communication through the brain is not actually so much the neural architecture or the pathways themselves, but actually the expression of receptors that are used for communication, these proteins that are present on neurons, they can be turned up and down in just the quantity that are there. And that has a huge influence over how the brain uh, connects with itself and therefore on plasticity. So through your research, you've been determining what motivates people, what gets them on a healthier path. What are some of the takeaways that people should be doing you know, whether it's nutrition, whether it's a certain amount of exercise, whether it's walking, whether it's, you know, playing backgammon or chess, you know, how do you kind of give somebody a roadmap, if you will? I'm a big backgammon player. I had to throw that in. I'm a big chess player. My dad loves backgammon though. So there's a couple of things that people hear all the time and, and they should continue to hear them all the time because they're really important. Exercise is by far and away the most important thing you can do for your brain. Um, and all sorts of exercise, strength training, as well as, as cardio training. In addition, good night's sleep and a healthy diet. I mean, these are general things that just have such incredible potential to overall just slow the aging process, including the aging of the, of the brain. And we can get into how the brain ages uh, in a bit later, if you like. But the main thing that I will say that <clears throat> maybe isn't often mentioned is just how you can really rewire your brain. In fact, we're constantly rewiring our brain. And... We do this um, every time we engage in any activity over and over again. That activity becomes easier to do. The threshold to engage the neural circuits that drive that activity um, start to go down. And so when you do specific types of meditation training, you can really induce plasticity that can help you be more resilient to stress, to focus better, uh, to get over certain phobias uh, in order to learn how to relax. And the second thing that I'll mention, in, in addition to how repetition in the brain really can induce plasticity and, and strengthening the same way that you exercise can strengthen your muscles. The other, you know, really key thing to mention is that the brain is not just what's in your head. The brain is in constant communication with the body and uses the body itself to understand what is happening. Uh, and one of the most important connections is, is through your breathing. And you're breathing really quickly. <clears throat> that can tell your brain that you're very excited about something. And so by having control of your breath, uh, often by slowing it down, which you can easily do just by breathing through the nose, you're able to in, you know, modulate brain states that then create a positive feedback loop to, to help you breathe more slowly, uh, uh, more, more frequently. So those are the two things. There's plasticity but through repetition and there's mind-body connections, which really just is part of the mind itself. Got it. So there's obviously been some non-FDA approved, you know, whether it's supplements, uh, you know, or, or drugs that, you know, will help you focus. Um, the health club industry and the fitness industry has never gotten to the point of, you know, brain development, brain optimization. Uh, that seems to have been kind of covered more on the medical side. And also, I think in some of the franchises that have, that have, been popping up related to whether it's escape rooms to really challenge yourself, whether it's, um, you know, some of the, uh, you know, human math, if you will, or some of the, you know, Princeton review. So if you were to advise a health club operator or a fitness studio operator to infuse 
you know, brain optimization as part of their uh, exercise or their marketing or their programming? How, how would we be able to go about that? Well, um, we've shown in a study that, that's still not published, but will come out soon, that just through classical mindfulness training, we're able to increase how quickly people can recover mentally from extremely strenuous uh, exercise. Uh, in addition, in those same participants in the study, we're, we were able to get them to actually push harder so they could push further in terms of endurance and they recovered mentally more, more quickly. So if there are partnership possibilities with companies that provide meditation platforms, or if you can have, you can work meditation into some of the classes, the way that you know, yoga studios tend to do, I think that can have a lot of benefits on how, on how effective people's training turn out to be. And are you able to quantify what is going on in the brain, you know, pre-workout, post-workout, and actually provide that data to so an individual? One, one, of the, one of the number one things when it, when it comes to, to strenuous activity is just the fatigue that sets in. So you know that when you get, start to get really tired, it's, it's much harder to, to focus. And so if you're really pushing yourself super hard, there's going to be a period afterwards where you, you maybe have less, uh, you know, overall oxygen or, or less, um, uh, glucose available to the neurons. And then, you know, the, the system becomes fatigued. And when the brain's in a situation like that, it tends to, um, prioritize the lower level structures. So these more subcortical nuclei, uh, because those are the basic ones, which really keep you alive, you know, drive all your, your subconscious processes that regulate your body, but also allow you to quickly respond to, to dangers in the environment. But when that happens, you start to lose a bit of your cognitive control. And it's your cognitive control that's really going to help you push further and uh, is going to help you re re respond uh, in, in the modern world. So, so that's, that's really what's going on. But when you, when you train with, with meditation, you just, because you reduce the threshold for concentration and focus, you can actually meet, make it so that it's less difficult to, to continue enduring. And so essentially, you're making your brain more efficient. Gotcha. Now you talk about mental illness and there's 800 million people affected worldwide. Talk about how you're using the camera on a phone to diagnose mental illness and how that technology is either already built in or you've layered some additional technology on top of that. Yeah, this is some, some really interesting work that we've, that we've done. And I must say that I was not a real believer in the power of, of artificial intelligence when we started on this journey. But it turns out that we've now been able to build a neural network that can take some biomarkers extracted through computer vision as we uh, image the face. So we use the, the front-facing camera on the phone. We first identify the human face, then we start extracting out biomarkers in, in real time. So we don't even have to store the videos or transfer them anywhere. And then these biomarkers are then sent to a cloud where a neural network does its computation. And we trained this neural network on a large series of data where we actually know the amount of time that people have spent in contemplative practice. And then by restricting the neural network in order to analyze those data for people who are meditating a lot and therefore able to give us accurate self-assessments, we were then able to use the biomarkers to objectively predict somebody's level of stress. Uh, that's what we've done so far. And it's really incredible how it works because you see it diverge from the self-reports. One, one great example is when people first start to uh, begin a meditation practice, they always self-report that their stress is going down. 
But what we've discovered through our unbiased objective measure of stress is that their stress actually goes up. And that's much more typical because meditation is hard when you first get into it. You shouldn't right. really be expecting your stress to go down, but because of what's in the zeitgeist, everybody does expect it to go down and they've reported as such. But that's just a, an ex expectation bias is what we call it. But the computer picks up on that and it shows the difference. And because it's unbiased and, and because it doesn't have these, these, these subjective setbacks, we're much more uh, able to then identify what specific forms of meditation or psychotherapy are effective for each individual. And then we can predict what forms of therapy will work with them. And it only takes uh, two to three weeks before we're able to make those accurate predictions. I mean, if you think about, you know, health insurance companies to get ahead of this and actually pay for meditation classes, pay for yoga classes, that's, you know, the golden goose, I think, for bricks and mortar providers to have people realize that exercise is not optional. Yoga is not only for people that, you know, are yogis. Uh, meditation is not something that you should do on an app for five minutes if you have time. Um, if you could quantify that, then I think you get the capital and the, and the revenue opportunity behind it to show, hey, look, this is actually what's going on. I feel like that's the part that's been missing in our industry it's, of saying, like, exactly right. quantify yeah. it for me. So the, 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 the great thing, and the reason why we were really so focused on integrating into the healthcare ecosystem is, is because uh, precisely of that reason. If we have a objective way to indicate how this is impacting people's mental well-being, well, then it's something that can be paid for. And because it's unbiased and it can't be skewed by some subjective reports, like you can't just go into the doctor's office and say, oh, I feel, I feel bad. No, no, no. We're going to find out how you feel by measuring you. So there's, there's all sorts of weird, you know, philosophical and ethical questions surrounding this. At the end of the day, nobody, you know, goes in and lies about their blood sugar level or, you know, their, 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 you know, their heart function or how big their tumor is. They rely right. on the tests that are done in order to, to measure that stuff. And I think we, we really need to treat the brain that way before we start getting this stuff paid for in a meaningful uh, manner. So explain uh, to, to the layman here, including myself, um, when you're looking at biomarkers, uh -huh. is this like an augmented facial recognition? Do, you know, if I've, do I have some, uh, you know, something with my eyes are dilating or I've got, you know, it looks like I haven't slept. You know, what are some of the, what are some of the biomarkers just so we understand yeah, there's, how there's, there's a plethora of information in the face. So, you know, that when you look at somebody, you can get an idea for how they're feeling. You can generally tell if they're feeling blue, if they're feeling super stressed, just by looking at their face. And that tells us something that tells us that there's information in a person's face that is, that is, you know, interpreted by our brains and gives us a signal. So if our brains are able to do that, then why can't we turn a computer to do the same thing? And the approach that we've taken at Mobile Interactive is we look at how does the human brain analyze another human's face. We extract out those particular data, and then we use them to train neural networks to essentially do the same thing that some part of our, our visual system and cortex is doing. Now, the types of biomarkers that are there, you're absolutely right. You can get microexpressions, particularly around the eyes, very, very important. The human brain doesn't really care what's going on with the mouth or other regions of the face when it comes to judging how people feel. And we also look at some things that we're probably not picking up on uh, with our eyes, uh, such as the heart rate and the heart rate variability. And we can get this out through color changes in the face because as your heart beats, your arteries will dilate and contract in synchrony. All this information is available uh, within the face itself and can be leveraged to train neural networks to objectively, unbiasedly quantify 
mental states. So obviously there could be some bad actors in that area. You know, I'm only going to hire people that, uh, you know, score very high on, on the uh, ability to manage stress and the ability to be optimized at all times. I think over the last five years, you know, mental health has definitely been at the forefront and accepted. Um, when I was growing up, going to a therapist was, you know, only one of my cousins went to that. He was a little bit off, off the wall. Uh, so if you have to go to therapy, you know, that was a worst case scenario uh, yeah. for you. Now it's obviously uh, become mainstream. Do you see companies like, um, I think there's like, be uh, is it better health or there's like four or five mental health coaching apps yeah. that are out there. Are they coming at this from a counseling or, you know, advice standpoint? Or are they coming at it from the medical and clinical side like you guys are? There's, there's two types. I mean, some of them are more just focused on, on a B2C place. They're really going after the consumer themselves and offering them something that, that may be of comfort. And people decide uh, with, their, with, their pay, with their pocketbooks as to whether or not it's useful for them. And then there are companies that mostly are, are pairing uh, patients with psychiatrists remotely as a way to help scale the ability to, to deliver therapy. Uh, and then there's companies like ours, which is really focused on highly scalable solutions, on demand, asynchronous, no medical professional that's, that's involved, um, after the initial recommendation or prescription. Uh, so from a standpoint of your company, Bobio, are you trying to become basically, you know, the industry standard or the testing platform? Yes, yeah, so our, we have a, a base platform, which itself is not regulated. That's used for remote patient monitoring, and it's used as a patient support tool and to give some data back to clinicians so they can take, their, take better care of their patients and more quickly come to decisions because they have access to the subjective data that they may not be able to extract out of a patient uh, in, in such high resolution uh, or ever, really. Uh, and from that platform... We then have a series of interventions that are very, for very specific medical conditions. We have something for uh, kids with traumatic brain injury. We have something for cancer survivors. We have something for postpartum depression. And these are clinically validated step-by-step -step programs that contain a lot of psychoeducation relevant for the particular medical condition. And we target certain types of therapy in order to induce the types of neuroplasticity that will result in healing for that particular medical condition. And those are released only after a prescription uh, and they need to be FDA cleared and we're going for reimbursement for these from the public and private payers. So I want to shift over to uh, a new uh, acronym. We use HALO. You've got now SAMD, Software as a Medical Device. Why don't you yeah. explain that to, uh, to everybody listening here? And so this term really comes uh, out of the fact that the regula regulatory agencies have always just made a distinction between what's pharmacological and what's hardware, what's, you know, what, what's, what's, what device. And then as this new class of medicine emerged, software as a medical device, as it's called now, uh, also often referred to as digital therapeutics, they needed to put it into some category and they decided to pair it with medical, the medical device category because there was already creeping into the medical device category software that ran the hardware that was medical device. And so that's why it sort of fit into there more quickly. But in many ways, it's a misnormal. It's, it's not 
a device like most people think of as a device. It's just pure software that runs on a phone. Um, the phone itself obviously is the device, but it's not what's regulated. It's the software itself. Got yeah. it. Well, I like I like the new acronym. I like software as a. So you you filled yeah, in those, those MD, blank. I don't know. It's it's ad libs. I think it's kind of the name of that. Yeah, it works. Good. So let me ask you a question on running a business. You know, potentially changing the world at the same time. You know, talking to investors. I'm assuming about funding this and what the revenue model is and how much you could potentially earn by also changing the world. So how do you think about that as an entrepreneur? And how do you kind of manage through investor presentations where they might say, you're not charging enough. And you say, well, you know, I'm changing the planet. Is that, is that enough for you to get involved? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, we've been very careful to design our um, revenue strategy such that we can make more money, the better we deliver care. Um, and so really trying to design the structure of the entire business to work better and to be more successful when people are healthier. And it's a tough, tough thing to do. You know, healthcare should really be called sick care because we're actually getting paid when people are sick. And the more Amen. people are sick, the more money that is, is made in the industry. And that's something that I think we can help shift. Uh, and there's a lot of people that want this to shift, right? Uh, from the governments, you know, to the patients themselves, to the, the, the healthcare, people operating the healthcare sector. Um, there's only a few players that are really, you know, working in the other direction. So I think, you know, it will happen eventually and, and we're happy to be a, a part of that driving force. And just talk a little bit about your company, you know, the size of it, where, uh, you've got personnel located, some of the research that you're doing, what's in yeah, approval, we're pretty, regulatory we're pretty global team. So we've, we've got, I think 14 people full-time at the company, and then we've got another 60 or 70 clinical psychologists, psychiatrists, meditation guides from around the world that, that work with us. And then the expanded clinical team uh, and other partners probably puts us up to around 250 people that are, that are really helping us get done what we need to do on the deep tech and the, and the clinical side and, and commercialization. Uh, our headquarters are in Singapore. There's some strategic reasons for this because we really see Southeast Asia as being a, a digital gold mine, for lack of a better term, um, in the near future. But most of our attraction is actually in North America. So we've signed deals with some major hospitals and telehealth providers in the States and in Canada. Uh, and we're really just kind of getting started in Asia on the, on the commercial front. That's great. And, and have you got outside funding or is it internal? Yeah, we've raised a little over 3 million so far. So still quite early days. And we have another uh, open round right now that we're trying to close over the next few months. And you know, we've got some really great investors. You, you, you were asking earlier about the conversations we have. This, this kind of, I, and I group my investors in two categories. There's ones that know science and the ones that don't. And the conversations I have with them are, are very different because when you don't know the science, uh, it's really hard. It's really hard to truly appreciate, you know, the, the technical aspects of what we're doing in addition to, you know, why it's so hard, why it hasn't been done before, uh, why it's different from other, other companies. And when you, you know, when you don't, don't, no, the science, then, you know, we really got to focus on other aspects like the go-to-market strategy, the financials, the upside, the traction that we have, et cetera. And so that's how we have to differentiate those conversations. Yeah. We've got some great funding, like, like from medical doctors and from, you know, health tech funds, even from governments. So it's, it's good. Well, well, please share the, uh, the materials with us. I've got some people to, to introduce from a standpoint of, 
you know, you started off on the clinical side, research side. You've been a, you know, mm-hmm. a capitalist entrepreneur now, if I can use that term with you, uh, you know, for about six years. How do you feel about how it's maybe changed you? Um, maybe lessons that people that, you know, maybe were in your path and want to make the leap to actually build a business and not build a, you know, case studies? Yeah, the, you know, the leap is, uh, is, a, is a good word. You know, I think the, the biggest thing that I did, which I shouldn't have, have done, is I quit my job and started, you know, pushing full-time with the company before we secured any sort of meaningful financing. Um, and in retrospect, uh, I could have waited a little bit longer, continued working uh, at the psychiatry hospital, and then gotten some, some bigger investment. But, um, you know, it's hard to say, you know, how that would have impacted things because, you know, sometimes you just get comfortable where you are. Um, so, so that, that's, you know, that's something to consider is, is, you know, before you really go all in, maybe you want to, to try to get uh, some decent runway uh, first, but, um, you know, I don't regret anything that I've done so far. I don't know how yeah. much it's, it's changed me. I've had many, you know, difficult periods in my life. I spend uh, a lot of time extreme, extreme skiing, which, you know, puts me in life and death situations, uh, multiple times per year. So I'm, I'm pretty good at dealing with uh, stress and, and staring down a, a gun or a bear. Gotcha. Uh, well, stick to uh, stick to this versus the skiing, so we can make sure that you're uh, you, you can accomplish I this take uh, big mission. Awesome, uh, man. Well, look, we're uh, we, we love what you're doing. Uh, it's a big issue in the industry. We think exercise and and health clubs and studios are the solution that should be the first point. Yeah. Uh, before anyone gets on any kind of pharmaceuticals that are high margin and recurring revenue on their own, uh, they've got a business that they know what they're doing, uh, and we've got to combat it. So great to have you on. Dr. Saab is going to be part of the Halo sector as of this podcast. Thanks for coming on, man. Awesome. We love what you're doing. Thanks and, so much, uh, Pete. Let's change it up.